morning, everyone. Welcome to day two of the 2023 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. Hopefully you had a really great day one. I'm so excited to be here this morning for this panel. My name is Tal. I'm a first year MBA student at MIT Sloan, part of the organizing team for this weekend. And I'm honored to introduce this panel, Moneyball, the impact of Moneyball 20 years later. Our panelists today are Daryl Morey, president of basketball operations at the Philadelphia 76ers, Bill James, baseball writer, historian, and statistician, Shane Battier, former VP of analytics and basketball development at the Miami Heat, and Michael Lewis, author and journalist. The panel today is moderated by Jackie McMullen, retired senior writer at ESPN. To give you a sense of how this works, we'll do the panel for about 45 minutes and then leave about 10 minutes for Q&A. You can submit questions via Twitter using the hashtag MoneyballTurns20. It's up on the screens in case you forget it. With that, I'll turn it over to you, Jackie. Thank you, Tal. Wow, what a crew here. I'm just going to say hello and leave it at that. Michael, I want to start with you because I was thinking about this book, which came out in 2003, so I'm guessing 2001 or so is when you started writing it, give or take? No, no, I actually, I met Billy Bean and started in on it uh, spring training of 02. Wow. It was so a year, to, it out. was exactly a year, a year wire to wire. I was done, done with it in a year. Okay, so God bless on that. Yeah. But you had just come off, you'd written a bunch of successful books, including Liar's Poker, yeah. which was a runaway bestseller, and I'm wondering as you went to your editor and said, well, here's my idea, was it a hard sell? You know, it was funny because I had not ever published anything about sports. Um, and they do think you should just try to do the same thing right, exactly. over, over and over again. But I, I, it was an accident that I started writing about Wall Street. I mean, there was no reason that it just happened to work there. Sure. Um, I got so worked up about it. I mean, I just, by the time I got called the publisher, and it was a late night email, and I remember what triggered the email. And I, I got so worked up about it, I didn't give him a choice. And I said, this is going to upset you. Uh, <laughs> the next book is about, it's not only the next book is about baseball, the next two books are. The first one's going to be called Moneyball. And I'm only writing it so I can write the second one that's going to be called Underdogs. And I had this whole, like, it all mapped out. And this is, you know, the next morning I got a call from my editor. And he said, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you clearly are into this. Just do it. Uh, it, it took them a while before they kind of figured out how it was going to work. But what, you know, and for them, the publisher wasn't, at, they saw a connection. It wasn't, this wasn't for them a huge departure. They said, we'll just say Michael Lewis writes about markets and we're just moving into the market for professional athletes. So they made a, they made a connection. Uh, so this couldn't have been your first book then? Because they would have said, yeah, no, we need something different. Right? I don't know. Yeah, I, think, I think anybody who got this material I did, you know, I stumbled into the material. Right. I think anybody who got the material, when I got the material, um, uh, could have found a publisher for it. I mean, it was just, it was, once you kind of framed it, it was, it was so compelling. I mean, it wasn't about baseball. No, it, was about, it was about the way human beings get valued. Uh, and baseball was just the example. So uh, it was, it was a, it was a joyous experience. I mean, it, the only thing that was not joyous about it is I wrote the first two and a half chapters and they got stolen. I, my office was robbed. Everything was taken out of it. I had to go start what? all over from the Are beginning. Are you serious? Yes. So I had to start. Oh, all that's over. a writer's nightmare. I had to start all over from the beginning. That was the only hiccup. Okay. Uh, but it was just it wrote itself. So the, the, when you wrote, rewrote them, they weren't the same. They couldn't possibly be. They're better. You know. Right. Always. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, really. <laughs> always. Better. 
right? You That's just, a painful way to go to get yeah, better it, chapters. It happens, but it happens. But I had, I mean, I had one or one hand on his books, the, on Bill's books, the whole time I was doing it. Exactly. I knew, I, that made that gave me like confidence in where I was, and it was, uh, it was there was no agony. There was no agony. So, Bill, had you met Michael Lewis? Uh, no, I had not. Uh, and Michael, I apologize for breaking into your office. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I, I had to leave my book somewhere, you know. The, no, I had oh, not great. met him before he uh, was working on the book. No. Well, so I met him while I was working on the book. Well, of course. I came, but I mean I, beforehand. I, I made yeah. the pilgrimage to Lawrence, Kansas. Only way to see Bill James. Only way to see Bill, Bill James. And yes, yeah, so and he probably wondered what the hell I was doing. I remember him saying, that's an awful title. <laughs> uh, he, he hated the title. Uh, but, but, and I remember him also saying, he was very sweet about it. it wasn't, he wasn't being rude. He says, I'm, I'm never going to read your book. Uh, I, I don't really read books. Have you no. read it, Bill? No, he hasn't. Uh, well, I, You've read it by I now. Not, I read it. I did not read. Anytime I saw my own name, I like, skipped 10 pages. Oh. I do not. I know people don't believe this, but I try real hard not to read anything written about me because uh, uh, I'm hypersensitive and I'll take anything as an insult. And I like Michael and don't want to be insulted, insulted by, by, uh, <laughs> by his stuff. So, uh, so for I, those I of you who don't it. know, because the, this is named the Bill James Room, and Bill James is a bas baseball legend, but as we learn in Moneyball, at one point, you were a night watchman. I'm going to say this. I wrote it down at the Stockley Van Camp Pork and Beans. That, that's correct. That's where I met my wife. The, um, she was she was working there. The uh, I was I was a night watchman. I, I worked in uh, uh, you know fast food and, and security job guard and stuff like that for for several years. I was the uh, I think a lot of people did well. Uh, Did anybody else here work at the Stockley Pork and Beans plant? <laughs> okay. But, you know, you're writing ba your baseball abstract. I think 1977 was the first one you, that is correct. you published. And it was, as I recall, stapled together and you sold about 80 copies. Not quite that many, but yeah. Okay, in, but, in so, but this is your passion. So I think people need to understand the beginnings of that because, as, as Michael has already told us, it was a the fuel for this book. But... Explain to people what, were, what, was in the, what was in that first publication of Baseball Abstract. Why, why was it so important for you to get it published? The, uh, uh, nothing of any significance was in there. I had ideas, but <laughs> when you start out, you have no idea how hard it is to write a book. And uh, so <laughs> I started writing the book about the uh, 76 season in, in January of 1977 with the idea of publishing it perhaps in March. Uh, wow. yeah, no concept of what I was doing. The, uh, and so there's nothing written in there that's very interesting. I just figured some stuff. Like I went through the sporting news and counted how many double plays were turned and the game started by each starting pitcher and stuff like that. The, um, uh, but uh, having done that and known that I didn't do it well, I thought I needed to do it better the next year. Uh, so I took another shot at it in 1978, uh, and wasn't a lot better. But, but doing it repeatedly, I eventually sort of figured out what I was doing. But, but in those papers, you were talking about the value of on-base percentage. 
which is really the foundation of Moneyball in many ways. You were also, I, I remember reading about errors. You, you thought errors in quotes were foolish because, again, I learned this. People, when they first started playing baseball, didn't have gloves. So, of course, there were a lot of errors, right, right historically. And you were talking about the range factor. All of these things is a gold mine for someone who's writing Moneyball. I'm, I don't want to put words into your mouth. Yeah. Would... By the time Michael was writing Moneyball, the field was growing, and there were a lot of more solid and better researched and better thought out ideas that were percolating in the field in general. The, uh, Michael writes some, I think. I've seen the movie a couple of times. The, um, uh, do, you close, do you close your ears when they say your name? Or? I, I never know when it's coming. Yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, Michael writes about my being unpopular in the game, which I was. And, but honestly, I was responsible for a lot of that myself because I just took random pot shots at people. Uh, and it's, it's, I, uh, I kind of grew up with an antagonistic relationship with most of the world. And that worked for me as a writer when I was young. And I honestly, I, I regret a lot of things that I wrote. And I don't, I'm not, no longer so literal about things like abolishing errors and replacing them with something more sensible. I'm not as, but that was the pathway that I took to get to where I eventually was. That's so interesting. I think anyone that suggests, I'm going to use the word radical change in, in the game, in any sport, is unpopular. Right. Billy Bean was unpopular. And that brings me to our friend Daryl Morey, who, <laughs> Daryl, I think you told, or did I read this in Moneyball? I forget now. I can't remember, because I've read so many things about this leading up to this panel. You read Bill James's Baseball Abstract when you were 16? It sounds about right. Yeah, maybe a little younger. I went to Walden Books at Summit Mall in Ohio, and uh, the first one was yellow or green, so it was like 84. I was more like 12, I think, yeah. So. And why was that so attractive to you? Why? Um, the original <clears throat> reason that I really was into data and baseball was because I wanted to beat my friends at Stratomatic and Earl Weaver baseball and these okay. games that uh, we would play on the Commodore 64. So I was in the first era of video games, and so Earl Weaver baseball was this was the best game. And to win, you you actually needed these concepts. Like like I I like to win more than anything else. So. Um, so if you're trying to win these games, you, you basically become like a GM. And people these days even ask me, they're like, oh, I play fantasy baseball. Or I play diamond, you know, pursue the pennant baseball or Stratomatic. You know, like how, how, is that very much different from running a team? And, uh, and obviously the people aspect's different, but the how do you select players is actually all that not different. Mm -hmm. And so that was my original reason to really get into, and I was into math, of course, so. But the human element of that makes it extremely different, doesn't extremely it? Extremely different, yeah, yeah, of course. But if you're not always, really, if uh, the reason for this, if you're not relying on the foundation of what are the players who make the biggest impact, like you, you will make, you, you have to have that as your ground, your ground truth. Um, I have a question for Bill. If you, if you think you have better EQ, and a different approach starting in 1977 would 
would baseball have gotten to your, you know, these concepts from you or others quicker? The, um, the other people who were trying to do things similar to what I was trying to do, um, many of them were, were better people than I am, and many of them were smarter than I am, and, and perhaps had better analytical systems, but none of them had the package of things that was needed to sell it to the public. Uh, part of which was the a kind of aggressive attitude about, uh, you know, telling other people they were full of shit. Sorry. The, uh, <laughs> uh, but, uh, uh, so some of it would have happened anyway because of the, um, the computer revolution starting not too long, the personal computer revolution starting not too long after I started the abstract. And that part of it would, would have happened anyway, but it would not have been united clearly with ideas. And because it would have been, uh, not been united with ideas that much of the baseball world found to be objectionable, it would have been less controversial, but ultimately less meaningful, I think. I think the, it would have been more streamed. You know, the baseball world would have gone in one direction and the analysis of it in a different direction, but they would not have, I don't believe they would have joined at the same time and to the same extent that they eventually did. I find it interesting because most people would think that if he had been less controversial, less adversarial, that it would have come quicker, that that slowed it down. But I think you're saying it was a requirement to penetrate the temple of baseball. That's it, it's status quo. People don't like people questioning status quo. It makes them uncomfortable. Well, and it also makes them insecure about their own future if they haven't thought of it first and they don't see it in the same lens. It was, but it was, it was an outsider movement. I mean, 100%. It, it's, what's rare is the insider who is sort of embraces the movement. But, but, right. uh, but a lot of what, you haven't said a word to Shane. He's no, that's, I'm, trying to help. I'm amongst <laughs> legends. I'm, just, I'm, Shane, I'm to trying here. to help no, here. Here's how we bring Shane in though. So I'm happy Shane, to be here. first of all, how old were you when Moneyball came out? Uh, Gosh, I could jump a lot higher. No, I was uh, in my second, third year in the NBA. Okay. So I was so, about 20. I was an old senior, so I was about 24, 25 years old. Right. Um, and the book was uh, obviously revolutionary. I played baseball in high school. So did so. you? But did you feel right away that that, it, that was the case when you read it? Did you say, you "Wow"? Read the book. I read the book. Huh. Right. I read the book. <laughs> I read the book, but I never correlated to basketball. Okay, well, that's I said, oh, this is a cute ask. baseball story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, yeah, like, <laughs> oh, okay. the catcher goes to Alabama, gets on base, a lot of walks. Like, okay, I, 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 I can sort yeah. of see that. So, like, I understood it for baseball. Right. But I never, never, ever would have thought that it had any applications to basketball. Because basketball, no, basketball, is, it's not a one-on-one -on -one sport like baseball is. There's five guys, and it's about heart and grit and determination. Mm, and like, all those cliches. All, all those things. Like, this doesn't apply to basketball. I, did, I never even made the correlation at, at all when I read it in, in 03. That's interesting. So in 2006, yeah. Daryl Morey, yeah. we've taken Daryl Morey, wait for it. We, I, really, when the book came out, Moneyball, you, I believe, were still with the Celtics, yes? I was with the Celtics. Walking yes. through the hall, I had no idea what he did. I'd see him and wave, and I'm like, I don't, I don't know who think that guy is. Did. I wonder what well, he you does. You weren't on the basketball side of things, right? I was You're like sort, of doing, or sort of doing both, yes. Yeah. So I came you were, with you were in the back. You were in the lab doing dates. <laughs> you were. I know you were. I came but. with new ownership, and when, he, when Wick and Steve uh, bought the Celtics, 
the the very first problems you have as a new team are not like running draft models. Like they're like, what people do we want to run the team? And oh my gosh, we better make more money so we can afford the play. So they were like sending me at some of these problems. I was like, not in charge because I was very young, but just kind of you know, a doing fix it all, analysis. Fix it all. And then it would it took months before. Uh, you know, they were like, oh, now you can do some of this basketball stuff. And they brought in Danny, who's amazing, of course. And, uh, and then Mike, Mike, we hired Mike Zarin, who got to work on it full time. But I was still working sort of on everything. The but so, but in point that we almost missed in the earlier is discussion is that a lot of what baseball people believed was just wrong. And you couldn't really make an impact without facing the fact that they had a whole set of nonsensical beliefs build up, you know, and there wasn't any way, whether you're a nice person or, you know, not so nice person like me, there wasn't any way that you could make an impact without telling them that they were wrong. And there wasn't any way you could tell them that they were wrong without offending them. Offend yeah. them. Well, that that's, was beautifully displayed in Moneyball. Like one of my favorite scenes in Moneyball is, the very obese scout munching on a curler saying, I think Jeremy Brown's too fat to play baseball for us. <laughs> no, it was, they, they said that when he walked, his, his thighs yeah. rubbed together so much they were going to start a fire. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. But, but, but it was, think of my position. He has generated the intellectual stuff. He's a beautiful writer. He was, he was a joy to read. I walk into this situation where one team has sort of like embraced him. It's a secret. I, and I was traveling with the team with his books, and I would sit in the press box, listening to the press people, watch them read their stories, interview people, hear what they were saying about the game. There was this whole kind of narrative that was so clearly false, and this whole other reality that was not being witnessed. And I just felt I was in possession of gold. It's, the, it's a writer's dream. It's like, it, it, once you realize like, the world sees one thing, and you see another, or someone has seen another, and there's this gap. It's, it's you just drive a truck through it. It's just it's just fabulous. Did you did you understand the implications? I mean, oh tw my 20 God. years. Did you did you when, when you were writing it? I thought, I thought that if I do my job, I wasn't. So this is the funny thing is, like when I'm doing it, the A's are amused that I'm there. Yeah. They don't think anything's going to come of it. And, and I had a conversation with Billy. Billy was pissed when he read the book. Really? Yeah, he was pissed. He called me up and he's screaming and yelling at me. Wait, after it came out or before it came out? The moment it's coming out, he got a galley and he, didn't, he couldn't do anything about it. No, and he calls up and he's, he's like, he's apoplectic. And he won't tell me why. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I just spilled all your secrets. Yeah. It's over. You know, I, everybody's going to do this now. And he, but he says, I say, why are you upset? He says, you have me saying fuck all the time. <laughs> and, 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 I, and I said, and throwing water coolers and all that. And he, and he said, and I said, but Billy, you do say fuck all the time. Yeah, and, I'll and, there. And, and, and he says, you don't understand, my mother's going to be furious. Yeah. And, and he, was, he was completely seriously. And I said, Billy, I, I'm relieved because I thought you were going to be furious because I just ruined your career. You know, that it's going to be everybody. And he, he, there's this pause and he says, you don't think anybody in baseball is going to read your book? He said, <laughs> he said, he said nobody's going to pay. You know, Bill James's stuff is out there. We've been doing it. Nobody pays any attention. So, but he's right. He was right. Wow. About, everyone read he the book. He was wrong. Well, he was right about he was right about that, the book. He was right about you weren't going to change the minds of the people who were already exactly. in position. You, however, 
the owner was friends with the guy who ran Goldman Sachs. And the guy who ran Goldman Sachs read the book and called the owner and said, you're an idiot. Uh, you're giving that access. For, no. The owners of all, of, like the Mets, of you're an idiot for the way you're running your organization. Read this book. And so the, the, oh, the change I see, I see. Yeah, came yeah. with owners like the Rockets calling right. Daryl. That's how the change started to come, for the people whose money was being wasted. Um, that was the mechanism, the, the biggest mechanism of change. But, but I, if you'd asked me, like, what's going to happen with this, I wasn't thinking about baseball. I really was thinking, look, You've got this, this, you know, forget it's a sport. It's a, it's a corporate endeavor. You've got these employees on the field who are doing what they've been doing, the same thing they've been doing for whatever, 70 or 80 years, more or less the same way. And they have, they're scrutinized by everybody. They have stats attached to every move they make on the field. And he and they have demonstrated that these people are not valued properly. If that person can be misvalued, who can't be? Right. I thought that's where we were going with it. I thought people were going to read this and say, like, around the office, like, uh, you know, it's, it was about women in the workplace. It was about, it was, right. it was about, it was about all, it's the way surface appearances cause people to misjudge. It, it was, you know, that was what was going on in my mind. And I thought the baseball story was lovely. And, the, for, and for me, the, I'm taking up too much air time here, I know, but, but for it's me. It's your book, honey, keep going. Uh, <laughs> you're doing great, Michael. Just stop using the F word. Uh, so, so Billy's the main character, right? Yeah. I mean, he's obviously the narrative engine for the thing. But to me, there was such huge emotion, emotional content in the stories of Chad Bradford and Scott Hatterberg. Right. These people who, who in Shane, and Shane becomes the basketball version of that. Right. But Shane's famous, so there's a little different. Shane's already famous by the time I get to him. He's a national player. Everybody knows he's good. They just don't know how good. Uh, but the, Daryl knows how good. But the, the, these, the, these people who are kind of obscure on the baseball field, who have these gifts, mm. and the gifts very rooted in who they are, and who've never been valued. And the, the, the discovery of their value by this mechanism of reason uh, was to me, the, that was the heart of the book. Uh, and I wish I could tell that story. Oh, you tell it once, you don't want to write the same story twice. Mm -hmm. And Shane gave me the chance to do, write the same story twice, but doing it in basketball, and it was a joy to do it. But I'm going to ask you, Shane, because you, you did become, I think, the poster boy for basketball analytics, and you've spoken very eloquently about it, particularly on the defensive end of floor, yeah. how if you force Kobe left and make him take that jump shot, it's a 43% shot as opposed to going right and letting him go to the hoop, and it's a 62%, all of that. But I wonder, because I, I know that you used to ask for scouting reports yeah. from Daryl. You used to do things that other players weren't doing. Were they looking at you cockeyed? Did they know you were doing it? Were you an outlier among your teammates for having an interest? Oh, in absolutely. Them? But like, no, I tell this to Daryl, and Daryl's become, you know, he's always been a mentor, and now he's a, I consider him a very close friend. But he, he really changed my life. Mm -hmm. Because when he traded for me, you know, in circa well, people were 04, 05, they were not happy. All right, they were not happy that they traded for this guy who averaged 10 points a game, you know, six rebounds a game, you know. For Jer those who didn't know, they, they drafted Rudy Gay, and everybody just burst into applause. Everyone, Rudy Gay was a huge college star, and then they shipped him right along with Stramiel Swift, who was one of the, like, fan favorites for Shane Battier. Just giving a little yeah. context. Yeah. And, you know, the year before, um, Jerry West, who I love, you know, he gave me my largest contract I ever, mm -hmm. ever had. But in those negotiations, the first conversation was, we'll never pay you what Shane wants. 
He can't dribble. He's unathletic. All right. You can't throw him the ball. All right. He plays hard. He's a good team guy, but like he he's not going to lead us to a championship. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so like this is like all the, the things I've heard in my entire life that I wasn't athletic enough, that I was slow. I'm from the suburbs. I'm too soft. Like you know, it kind of hurts now that I'm on, on the big, on the big stage. Um, and so I, I felt like super undervalued. I said, trade me, get me out of here. If Jerry doesn't want me, like give me some, you know. And so a year later, Daryl trades for me. And one of our first conversations is like, look, you know, we value you higher than anybody else in the league. And I want to show you why. And so I'm like, all right, you, ha- you have my attention. Mm-hmm. And he led me on this journey of, of data and analytics and actually showed me some of the models that had me um, you know, near the top of the, of the league. It's something I'd never, ever experienced before, all right? So look, if someone says you're pretty good and we like you and this is why, you're gonna listen. Was there, what do you remember? You remember being surprised by yes. what they were looking? Yes. What, what particular do you remember that he was paying attention to? Well, it, it was all in the explanation of like what really wins you basketball games, yeah. okay? Efficiency, mm-hmm. all right? The value of not turning the ball over, right? The value of making open shots. Mm-hmm. Like these are all things like, yeah, of course, this, this is part of my, my game. I'm like, yeah. Slowing down other teams. No, 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 no big deal. So he's telling me things. I'm like, yeah, like, yeah, I do those things. But like, right. does that really win you games? Did, you know, he told, I remember the couple things that, that jumped out at me. Because you didn't, you, once he pointed them out, you noticed them. But you didn't notice them before. He said, like, Shane, not athletic enough to block a lot of shots, right? That's what he said. But watch what he does with his hand when Kobe's going up. He doesn't try to block the shot. He puts his hand in, in front of his eyes. Mm-hmm. And, and he says it's much more effective. Yeah. He also said Shane is also very aware of statistics and, and their effect on the value of the contract. Watch when Shane has the ball at the end of, the, at the end of a half, and he's got a, you know, like he, at half court, and he could take the Not shot. He it. waits until the buzzer goes off so it doesn't lower his. Well, speed. that was annoying. <laughs> don't, 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 don't hey, celebrate. I got I to eat. I got to eat. Right? There's a long line well, of like, guys. You know, don't what, what Daryl did and Michael wrote about and, and Bill, you, you started, was really crystallized process, right? And in sports, we were so results-oriented. The box score, right? The column in the paper. That's well, what, that's and the, what and we're the, judging. The myth of plus-minus. The, the, this, the, the, this the myth of like, like what makes you a productive athlete, right? Right. The, before abstract came out, we didn't talk about process. And so now, for the first time, I'm around a guy who talks process. That the result actually doesn't matter. The result is actually a byproduct of your process and all the things that go into it. And I said, that makes all the sense in the world to me. And so like, this is, this is why this is revolutionary. Mm-hmm. Because for the first time really in the history, we talked about process. Now Bill Walsh talked about these things, you know, but you know, why do we have the stats that we do initially? Because they're the easiest things to measure. Do you make or miss a shot? Do you grab a rebound or not, right? Not the best measure of what. No, the availability of the rebound is the availability of the rebound is the stat. The process, and that—that's what is revolutionary. Can I bring this to today for a moment? And it's still that it's frustrating. We still struggle with how teams, because the teams have gotten very sophisticated Mm -hmm. in basketball, but the players from coming up through AAU and even college and everything. They still have no idea how to do the things that the teams will value, and they and it, it's a huge mismatch that still causes a problem. Where, 
I'll talk to my colleagues around the league or even people on my team still, and they'll still be focused on how many shots am I taking, right? How many points? We'll have people. Score? We'll have people in the ear of players literally say, "You need to miss more shots." Now they're not idiots. They're basically getting to the concept like you need to be confident enough to take and not worry if you miss. We talked about that in clutch, but they don't communicate it that way. Sure, of course <laughs> they not. communicate it like you need to get your shots up, not you need to get good shots up. And so it's, it's very frustrating that if we could align, we still have this terrible misalignment in basketball and maybe other sports. I don't know how this is in baseball. Maybe you can talk, Bill, but, but there's a big misalignment to what people think will get them paid in the NBA and the things that now do get them paid, like a PJ Tucker or a- They haven't or, figured it out? It's shocking. I... There, we've, see, we've seen some very sophisticated agents and people that almost do the reverse where they hack the system. They know how draft models work, so they're like, I'm not going to like maybe play as fundamental defense, and I'm just going to go for steals because we know that those, are, those drive some draft models and things like that. So there are people who are smart and like hacking it the other way, but hmm. no, like the, the culture of – I just need to get up points, and that's what's going to get me paid, is still there in a huge way in the NBA. Well, but it's a general principle that hard information always is preferred over soft knowledge, even if the soft knowledge is really what's more important. And this frustrates me as, as well. I, I, sh I should confess that one time about 10 years ago, I helped to convince Daryl to draft a KU basketball player who shall remain nameless. And he, uh, I found out a year or two later he was terribly frustrated for the exact reason he was just talking about, that this guy had the ability to have a long career in the NBA if he would just do what Daryl was trying to get him to do. But he wouldn't. And, you know, last I knew he was playing in overseas somewhere. <coughs> so anyway, anyway but, but uh, one thing that the old scale school baseball professionals say, which is no doubt true, is that what I call team positive behavior and team negative behavior is really actually very important. I don't doubt that it is. The only thing is you can't measure it. And because we can't measure it, it has little impact. It's soft knowledge and it just gets pushed aside by hard knowledge. So really the biggest thing that we have the biggest gap in our field, the biggest thing we still have to figure out is how to define and measure team positive behavior and team negative behavior. That's, that's my opinion. But how will you do ever measure that? What's that? How can you ever measure that? Um, you have to put cameras in every room. No, just <laughs> the, uh, no I mean, I think it's, it's, it's going to be an intangible. No, I don't think it's always intangible. You, you, can, uh, you can measure. You can talk to people. Well, with the Red Sox, one thing that we did uh, was we would ask a player when we drafted him, of all the people you've ever played for, played with, or played against as an amateur, who would you want to have at bat in a game situation? And this one guy, I'm blanking out his name now, he didn't make the majors, but we asked, asked him who he would like at bat, and he said, uh, Dustin Pedroia, who at that time nobody was scouting, and he says, Dustin Pedroia is this little bitty shit, but he can just hit the crap out of the ball. Uh, and so we started following, and we did, did draft him. Well, that, that's, that's a small step in that direction, mm -hmm. right? But the, um, you could track things like uh, does the, and you could teach things like does the player 
help to build the confidence of younger teammates? Does he do things that are a distraction uh, from the team? From the team, does he? Well, I've said enough. The, uh, but that, that's it is. You don't my, have to do that because the coaches in the NBA are, I would say, well, you can tell me from. They're extremely attentive and focused on that because it is very important. Um, you you can actually really hurt your team in the NBA, especially if you're a good team. If you add the the wrong player, right? You can you can really get negative. We have a much smaller team set, and I'd love Shane's thoughts on this, but I would say coaches sometimes overvalue it, but for sure it's a real thing. Like if you are adding someone who can, who, who hurts the confidence of one of your better players, I mean, that, right. that could be completely the worst thing ever, so. I have a question about leadership. So I think leadership sometimes is misinterpreted. Your leader isn't always the guy that's getting 25 points a game or his on-base percentage is through the roof. Leadership to me is, and maybe it isn't intangible, maybe there's a, well, a way to measure leadership. So I guess I would ask all of you, we'll start with you, Shane. Yeah. How do you, is there a way to measure leadership? Um, you know, there are a few ways that leadership's exhibited. I, I played for Hall of Fame coaches up and down the line. Right. Coach K, Eric Spolster, Rick Allerman, Jeff Van Gundy, Mike Fratelli, Mike Fratello. Um, a great leader connects, connects people with a future they don't know. Okay, so they have a vision for this is the future and this is how we get there. Okay, great leaders, they make, they allow their people to think for themselves, right? Yeah. We're part of this, I'm part of this. It's not my plan, it's our plan. You know, great leaders um, allow for individual consideration. So, you know, as a leader, do I treat everybody fairly but differently? Oh, you have to. You know. That's a money ball. 12 different yeah. pictures. You need 12. I wrote it down. Hold on. It's because it's good. So did I. I know. You wrote <laughs> it first. <laughs> if you have a dozen pictures, you need to speak 12 different languages. Exactly. exactly. That was money ball. You know, so how you measure that, right? Um, simple ways, we, we talked about it, you know, time spent at the gym or the field, right? Everyone's got his key cards. Are people coming in at the last minute? They coming in late? Mm -hmm. They actually enjoy being in an environment where they want to be, right? Yep. right? We, we talked last night. Like, I know there's been some research on just physical connection, you know, literally right. counting the times people come together and, and touch physically. When you are, when there's trust, you're more apt to actually have a physical connection with your, with your group. You feel safe. Really good An evolutionary point. tactic, yep. right? From our, from our days hunting wolves in the, in the, in the, in the jungle. Um, there are no wolves in the jungle. No, there's I no know. wolves. Yeah, I was going to. That's a metaphor, Michael. Know, that's, a me that's a metaphor. That's a metaphor. Wolves in the woods. Um, Shane, can I ask, your, yeah. your son's playing basketball now. Yes. Are the kids focused on the right things that drive winning, or are they focused on some of the, maybe what you'd call, it's, like, individual accolades? I find it very difficult for, for young people especially to sacrifice self for the sake of the team in this Instagram world. You know, they're inundated by, you know, the phone, the TikTok, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. And this is an affliction that our NBA players <laughs> and our MLB players right. deal well, with. All the time. Yeah. Right? Look at me, my life, look at me. And so the thought of sacrificing, you know, my personal gain for the sake of the team, which, I, you know, I may never be recognized for how great I am, which may in turn limit my financial upside, is terrifying. Terrifying. So great leaders 
can get people to let go of, look, you will be recognized if we win, right? I tell people, I only get two questions about my career. It's not how many points did you grab, what's your career high? Couldn't tell you, no idea. They say, where do you keep your championship rings and how do you decide which one you want to wear? <laughs> there you go. Right? Now that's legacy. Yeah. So to be a part of a winning team, that's, that's the way to get individual recognition. Daryl, who's the greatest leader you've ever had on your teams? <laughs> You're not going to answer that, are you? Uh, no, it's, uh, I'm thinking. We had some really good ones. Yeah. Oh, can I come back? I will answer. No, we can that. come back to that. No, <laughs> but, so I, I, you know, there's a lot of New Englanders here. I, I obviously, I watch the Celtics a lot. You're talking about taking care of the basketball. I, it's an unpopular thing to say in Boston, but I don't think they can win the championship because they don't value possessions. And I still think for baseball, getting on base remains the most important thing. There's just, it's just, right. it's so simple. Yet, Bill, you were telling people this for years and. No one was really listening. Possessions in basketball, I feel the same way about. I wonder, when you look now at modern analytics, and I'll ask Bill and also Daryl, like the Raptor rankings, do you put any stock in Raptor rankings? It's, a, it's an analytical tool that I think is pretty accurate. I wonder how you feel. What is it? I'm from uh, Nate Silver's company. It's good. Oh, right. okay. It's a combination uh, of. Yeah, I respect Nate. Um, so the I reason would. I bring this up is Derek White is in the top 15 in the NBA in the Raptor rankings. He's a player can't that people don't think of as a star, right? A superstar. And yet I would say he might be the single most important person in what happens to the Boston Celtics. I believe, and, this, and Bill and I have talked about this, that there's, there's a sort of a public sphere of what's available, and then there's now what's at the teams. And, uh, is there be, a big gap? Oh, I'm sure. Uh, it used to be enormous in baseball. Yeah, yeah. The public stuff was actually way better than the teams yeah, right. had. And now the teams, I believe, are quite a bit ahead of what's in the public sphere. Although it's, that's a closer gap. I believe in basketball, the internal top teams have much better than the public sphere. We have better tracking data. We have all, all this kind of stuff. So I, I personally don't focus a lot on the Raptor rankings. Okay. Um, I do think that of the public sphere, like sort of these all-in rankings, I believe it's in the, the, the top tier mm -hmm. of the ones to look at. Yeah. But, but the, the fundamental... What, is your, what does your internal data give you that... Say uh, so it's the tracking data, and, uh, and so you can, you can do a lot more with that. Like mm -hmm. You can know how challenged shots are. You can know the start state's a big big, big impact on basketball data. So whether or not you get the ball uh, kick ahead to you in transition and you're just going in for a layup is a huge difference um, versus if you're late in the clock and having to generate a shot against Shane right. Battier. Like, right, so, driving against and, and But both of them in the box were look like a shot and it went in or it didn't. And obviously, Raptor and those others adjust as much as they can with the data they have, and they, they do mm -hmm. as best you can. But without the... Without the tracking data, you can't actually isolate a lot of these. A lot so of these. Sport factors. vision helps. Sport view. Oh yeah, a lot of these. Yeah, no. There's good. Yeah, you can buy all. Yeah, if you can get all that data and, and synthesize it. But now teams have you know large teams of people putting lots of time in, and so. But I, of the public ones, they do pretty well. I have a question for all you guys. So we talk about just like it gets MVP when, wrong. When we no, talked about like, I, was I surprised about the intangible things that I did, like. I wasn't surprised that I did it, but like I was surprised at the impact. So across your writing and your research and your research, um, 
what's like the appropriate level of, of awareness players or coaches should have for those things? Yeah, it's a real question. I, I, I actually thought there were going to be lots of Shane Battiers, lots of players who would be wanting the data and sure. looking for, be very integrated. Like, I want to I work together to create an edge, right? And, and that really hasn't happened. I, I think hmm. the game's also evolved. Coaches are, have become very smart about setting up the systems and structures such that you're playing in an optimal way. They've done this forever, but now there's data that they use. So they set up the systems and structures for spacing and, and all the, like your actions used to set pick and rolls below the three-point line. Now often you'll set them above so that, you know, if they go under, now it's a three versus, you know, so there's, there's, that's the simple example. So you don't, long, long way of saying like you want, we talked about clutch, like, you don't really want most players, and I'm surprised Shane could do it, thinking about the 20 thing. Think of your think of your golf lessons. Like, you have your golf lessons, your elbow, whatever, but when they say to go swing, they don't tell you to go, like, think about all the, like, right. stuff I just taught you. You just need to be able to swing at that point. And so I think it makes sense that players haven't. But I, I assume there would be more Shanes that would come along and say, Let's work together, even if just to like suck up and try to get a contract. <laughs> so, but there's a lot less of that than you'd expect. And coaches have done a, done a very good job integrating the, the data and analysis into how they have the team practice and perform so that the players don't actually have to understand everything, if that makes sense. But you were interested, when you were interested in, the, you were interested in things like where you put Kobe on the floor to minimize his efficiency, yeah, that kind of thing, and that's really that is something you can. I don't need to suck up to Shane, but to this day, he's the only player it's that amazing would this. would Shocking, actually. we would give him the analysis, and he'd very smartly say, "This isn't sufficient." When I'm in this moment on the floor, I need to know this or this, and this state is not helping me. And sometimes we'd have to come back and be like, yeah, you know what, we can't help you there. It's too complicated. You just have to use your instinct. But sometimes we'd be like, no, this is a very clear thing, and we should have been giving you that. And they were, well, he and Sam Hinkie like, literally worked together yeah, every to day. create the report that he exactly well, like, well, wanted. Like my, my perspective was like, what? if you're taking a test, do you want the answers before the test? Yeah. <laughs> Literally. Well, I mean, you know, I give you the opposite. Literally. View. That when I was like two months into money, working on Moneyball, and I, you could see that the front office was engaged in this kind of lab experiment, and the players were basically the lab rats. And it, they were doing stuff that the casual fan could see was weird. The you know, leadoff hitter was fat and slow. There was someone playing first base who never yeah. played first base, all that. And I remember saying to the front office, I said, like, like, do the players, like, they know all this stuff, the reason you're doing this, have you, like, explained it to them? And Billy said to me, we, it just confuses them, we don't tell them anything. It's <laughs> interesting. And he, and he said, he said, actually, don't tell them. And I, and I said, well, like, why not? And I remember him saying, he said, you don't understand, you can't be too stupid to play baseball. <laughs> and, it, it, and he said, they won't understand it, it will just mix them up. Yeah. And it actually turned out not to be true. Yeah. That I went and I started, when I started to talk to them, they were riveted by what was going on. I, I don't know, there's something, there's a two-culture thing But not on. all of them were. Like, like no, Ray, some, you know, like some Ray of Durham, I thought that was a really interesting yes. part of the book. So Ray some Durham. Some of them just didn't care. Yeah, Ray but, Durham was a base stealer. Right. And he came to the A's, and Billy Bean said, yeah, you're not stealing bases here. We value men on base too much. We're, you're not going to, I think Don't risk it. Yeah, you, we're you not going to have that yeah. risk. And, and he's like, it's what I do, yeah. you know, and left as a free agent the next season. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. 
That's right. Yeah. But I think your question was, uh, do you have to know this stuff in order to manage successfully? And my answer is no. You have to know something that other people don't know, and you have to know how to apply that. But it doesn't have to be this. Right. You know, Billy Martin was a very successful manager, and I guarantee you he wouldn't have understood or, he, you know, he wouldn't have had a kind word to say about anyone on this stage. Uh, <laughs> but he knew what he was doing. You have to know something. He, well, what he well, liked to do is how do you know he knew what he was doing? How did how did you by his record? Uh, what he what he was really good well, at was putting putting the fear of God in, putting the fear of God into people. Uh, the, uh, I don't know his record tells you anything. Like he could have just had better player. Like what do you mean? Is no, no. Every, every team that he took over improved yeah. dramatically. Okay, there you go. Well, uh, I was, I was waiting for that. You're helping him to become Bill James. <laughs> <laughs> but Whitey uh, uh, Herzog, who I admired greatly, but he he didn't use the kind of ideas that I use at all. But what Whitey was really great at was uh, there were a lot of drugs in baseball at that era. And Whitey was like really good about getting those guys out of his clubhouse in record time. If you found out a player was doing that and it was starting to spread, you're gone. The, uh, makes a big difference. And but, I have this theory, Bill, though, that you're just, because you were the outsider who was not nice by your own words to everyone, now you're just on an apology tour of just trying to be nice. <laughs> you're just trying to be nice to everyone. No, you know what, the, I have another theory about him. It's similar, but, but he, was, he thrived as the outsider. He's now totally the insider. It, the, game is, the games have been overrun by his kind of thinking. And he's uncomfortable on the inside. So he's, he's putting himself in opposition. You're saying like Billy Martin? He's in opposition I mean, to the move that he happening? created. But I always Billy recognize the limitations of my own ideas. And that, that's all it is, is I recognize, because I live with these ideas longer than anybody else has, I recognize the yep. limitations more than some other people do. And there are a lot of people in our field who give us a bad a bad reputation by insisting that everything we say is God's truth, which it isn't. It, it's all true up to a point, and then you have to start thinking about the other stuff. And I've moved on to the point at which I'm, uh, I'm thinking about the other stuff, and I'm sorry it offends you guys. Just no, no, you just overcorrected. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what to make of that. <laughs> um, I'm going to just take some questions, because we're getting to that point. And Bill, I'm going to find one for you. Um, okay, let's see here. So, well, this is kind of interesting. Was, in fact, there anything about the money ball mindset that had a negative impact on the sport, in your opinion? I, I think that's the question I just answered, yeah. People, well, but people th one class of priests was replaced by another class of priests. Somewhat, yeah. That, yeah right, yeah, but I, right. I guess I want to get a little more specific in terms of... The, I think I can answer your question. We get blamed for a lot of stuff that actually right. doesn't have that much to do with us. I mean, people think that the, uh, well, the, the shifts did right. come from analytics, and I don't know that they were gr great. I don't, but they didn't have a lot of impact, really. And I mean, everybody does them, and they, you have to do them because you can win an extra game a year by doing them, but you can't give up that game. Well, but Why don't you love the shift? It's like this interesting dynamic of the game where... Whereas purists like, just... It, it, added, it added degrees of strategic freedom that people took... It's very interesting. Like, why wouldn't you love the shift? Well, uh, what I was trying, trying to do is that people think that the constant shifting of pitchers to relief pitchers and... Uh, the constant rise in strikeouts and home runs, that those have something to do, and the death of complete games, that those have something to do with 
my ideas. But the reality is that all of those things started long before all of those trends, all, all of the major trends that are sh shaping, have shaped baseball into the sometimes boring thing that has become in the last few years, all of those trends go back to the 19th century. And what happened is they just got bigger and they got go back to the 19th century because they represent essential truths, right? And they just got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And yes, we did feed the, we did feed the monster a little bit. So they, they started to grow faster rather than leveling off. But we didn't create any of those trends, really. I, and a lot of people think we did, but I don't think we did. <laughs> OK, Shane. How much does player intelligence and having an analytical IQ go into buying into the use of data? I would say curiosity is more important than intelligence. OK. Right? Having an open mind, uh, examining how, you know, with examining your process, can I improve? And, and like, there are a lot of players that are voracious about self-improvement and will do anything. You know, I'm, you know, I grew up, I had friends who all had the platform shoes. Remember those, like little thing, like that would improve your vertical jump. You know, there, there's versions of that everywhere. Now, we give those same players SATs, probably didn't score very high. Yeah. Um, but there has to be an intellectual curiosity about, ah, oh, this is interesting. And that's the role of data. I tell them when I, you know, Zach and Liam, if they're here, and BHEC, uh, the role of data is to get someone to say, huh, that's interesting. That's, that's the job. When researchers produce, huh, that's funny. And that will spur innovation, that'll spur inspiration, right? And so trying to help our players, uh, we're just trying to get them to say, huh, that's interesting. That, you have that a, might help. When you were with the Heat, was there one player in particular that was willing to do that? Yeah, I, I told this, well, I told the story uh, in the earlier session, you know, I told the greatest player of all time, LeBron James, uh, made him, you know, probably, you know, two bips better as a basketball player. We are playing the uh, Oklahoma Thunder, Oklahoma City Thunder, and, and the splits on Kevin Durant, like he was better going over his right shoulder uh, versus his left shoulder by about 20%. It was a pretty bad split. So I said, LeBron, just, if you're on KD, make him shoot over his left shoulder, you know, and, you know, God save me, because he gave him two possessions, and LeBron made him go over his left shoulder, and he missed both shots. And LeBron now you said, have his attention. damn, Batman, that was great. What else you got for me? <laughs> so I didn't have the, the heart to tell him about sample size and variance and yeah, normal distribution. Like, LeBron, I got, all, I got everything for you. But like LeBron, you know, was one of my favorite teammates, because he was curious. He, he was always yeah. curious, and he wanted every advantage. And, you know, we talk about the soft skills, like the upside of players who are curious about their games and, want, and will look to every advantage, whether that's sleep, nutrition, weight training, training drills, like that's where, that's where true upside lies. All right, Michael, what's your process for choosing projects? Because this one was a grand slam home run. And how do you decide Yes, this can work. I can take this forward. It's, it's messy. It really is. Um, I kind of move through the world looking for things that interest me. Uh, when they interest me, I spend some time with them. And then start thinking about how this would be, how you would kind of reduce this to a narrative. And, from, and sometimes it takes a long time. I mean, I've had projects that from the moment of colliding with the idea to the moment of execution is years. Yeah. And sometimes it's like this. It's like... It, a month into it, I knew, I, I knew what I had. And 
for me, there's always one test. And it's, and it's completely, and it's a feeling. It's when I've got to the point with the material where I ceased, it's no longer my ambition. It's no longer, I, I'm in a sweaty mess wanting to write a book, uh, where I feel an obligation to it. Like, this is so good, just keep yourself alive long enough to do it, it <laughs> because it's so important. And if I get that feeling about it, I do it. And if I don't get that feeling about it, I don't do it. That's awesome. I, uh, I, I have to volunteer this. I don't think I ever told anybody. When Michael visited me in Lawrence and was working on Moneyball, he had just, he told me he had just come from visiting his old friend. His name was Tui, as I recall. And, and he was at, his, the Tui family had, had uh, just brought into their household this 300-pound high school kid. Yeah, uh, Michael. Named Michael Orr. And, and uh, he, he just thought it was a fascinating story. I don't think at that time you decided to write a book about it's, it. He was my high school teammate. And, right. from, and, he, and I thought, I can't write a book about a good kid I was in you know, high school with. But you had the blind side happening. It's true I, that I encountered that before I encountered the Moneyball story. But I just thought, this is, it's indecent. I can't write about this. <laughs> and, but, but, it just, but it built and built and built. And I thought, I can't not. You know, there's an obligation here. Right. And so it's, it's it, but it's funny, but it doesn't start with such a noble spirit. It starts with like ordinary ambition. Yeah. Like I want to I'm a writer. I'm supposed to find stuff to write about. I'm curious about the world. And, but it gets to it, when it gets to a point where it's beyond that, uh, then, then it's, I know it's sort of worthy of the time. And you know, books are, I mean, as easy as Moneyball was to write, books are generally a pain in the ass. <laughs> it's, and, and it's the worst thing but ever. But it, and so the, you're gonna, you're gonna hit spots where you just, don't want to do it. And if the only reason you're doing it is like, I want to write a book. Financial gain. It, it, or whatever it is, it's just going to all fall apart. Uh, so you've got to have that other thing. So I, that, you know, it's just, and it really is a feeling. And I ha I've been lucky enough to have it a bunch. Uh, I was going to ask you, is there one project that you went down the road and said, I'm not feeling it. I got to let this one go. This, the, you know, I told you that I, when, I, when I sold Moneyball, I sold it as two books. And it was... The second book was going to be about the kids that the A's had drafted that year. And I was going to follow. I, I thought that Moneyball would sort of tee it up. And we'd see the, the role in be a combination of these coming-of-age stories, these mm -hmm. people, young people trying to make their way in professional baseball. And also that having all, a lot of them had this new valuation imposed on them. The right. fat catcher didn't think he was draftable, Jeremy. and he was a first-round draft choice. That, um, and I was going to follow the way the change in perception of them affected their lives. And it was going to be, and I thought I was going to get deeper in the weeds in, uh, uh, in the analytics movement. You get a chance to do that, Michael. <laughs> no, <but laughs> With me. Yeah, that's right. No, but well, Michael, no, but I mean, I, you know, every speech I do, I owe you royalty. You know, because you made what I did palatable for people. Are, are you for paying people. up today? Are you right. going to pay up today? I am. I will. But but that book but, got eaten by Moneyball. Yeah. I just well, like and it. also, yeah. Moneyball, I, I was a cease to be interesting. Well, but also, Nick Swisher it was a very fine Major League Baseball player, but he was only with the A's three years. Yeah, we didn't, whether they were the A's or not, that didn't matter. What mattered was, like, the whole Moneyball just went boom. Yeah. And there wasn't going to be anything new or interesting about this other thing. But it was, it was, it was so I just... I mean, I spent three years in the minor league system. I, I was in uniform for the Midland Rockhounds in the dugout. And I mean, I had all kinds of stuff, but it didn't add up to, like, you need to write this book. So I did a lot of work on that and just gave up. I thought, you know, and my, I, 
takeaway from Moneyball when I read it actually, because I was working on draft models with Mike Zarin at the time, was my, my literally only takeaway was their assumption on who they're drafting is like probably wrong because they, at least as perceived in the book, now this yeah, could yeah, be yeah, unfair yeah. to Paul, was that if you're good in college or wherever, that you will then be good. Well, that was pro. all gonna be part of that. They, but they, they, they admitted that, look, it isn't that we know how to do this, it's that no, clearly nobody knows how to do this. And if we start to use the data we have on them, maybe we'll get, so they had funny things. They had a kid they drafted in the first round who had a lot of power in college, and they didn't bother to go see what his home ballpark looked like. And it had a 270 foot left field fence. And he was hitting fly balls out of the park. <laughs> and it turned out that's what he did. Uh, and so that, but there was a lot of that, and, but it just, it wasn't, it, it, it just didn't, it didn't it seemed trivial. It seemed trivialized by what that. What, what it was interesting. They were starting on the path that every team went. What right. happened there, which was right. well, know. and the, the biggest fear. The reason it took everybody so long is the fear of risk. If you if you're not willing to take the risk and in some cases fail. It's social risk. Right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. And the pressure is immense, and it gets even worse in today's media social. I mean, when you guys make a mistake, any of you now, my goodness. It's why Shane's teammates, Chuck Hayes, like, did get basically no sniff in the league because he, he couldn't release the ball on his free throws. He, like, he was six foot four and a half as a center, like all these things, but he was a crazy impactful player. Um, and it was because of the risk of you would look like an idiot if you brought this guy to your team. I don't know what you thought, Shane, when you were first around Chuck. What, I mean, uh, like, I love Chuck Wagon. <laughs> you can't do anything time. but love Chuck, but, but most, players who like he doesn't fit the mold of no. like hey this guy's an NBA player until you watch him play right I, as soon as we're talking about teammates just a little bit and Nate Silver's name was mentioned I wanted to I wanted to make sure everybody knew that Nate's part of our group I mean he's not on yeah. stage at the moment but Nate's one of us and he's one of our contributions to the larger society yeah he's super smart if you, really I think Pakota is still yeah. his creation yeah. on, wow. on the baseball side yeah. so. well gentlemen this panel's over Thank you very much. Thanks, Jackie.